uh, September of 2015, me, Kayla, and my little brother, we got a chance to, to go and do something that I've wanted to always do since I was a little kid. I grew up a uh, Chicago Cubs fan. And growing up in Broken Bow, we didn't have much of anything, but we had a, a TV without cable, of course. But you could always get WGN. And so we would get WGN, and so we would watch Bozo the Clown in the mornings, and then we would watch Ryan Sandberg and the Cubs in the afternoon. Uh, in 2015, we got a chance to go to, uh, to Wrigley Field. And while we flew into Dallas, and, or into Dallas, into Chicago, and we were there in Chicago, we had to make a decision. And so as we were there, we drove over to Wrigleyville, which is as you're driving, you just all of a sudden stop at a stop sign and you look and, oh, there it is. And so as we were there, um, we had to make this decision. Or how are we going to get to the game later on this evening? And so a couple of the options that we had were simply this. We can drive, and right here is a parking lot, literally just a few steps from the stadium. Unlike any thing that I've seen before. I've been down to to Dallas and I've seen the Rangers, but you see how that is. This was literally a neighborhood. And so while we were there, we said we can pay the $50, park, walk across the street, and we can watch the game. And when the game's over, we can leave, go to the parking lot and drive off and watch the Cubs play. We could have done that. But we decided to do something different. What we did, instead of doing that, we parked literally miles down the road and we hopped the L train. And as we got on the L train, we rode the L. And as we rode, we would stop all these different stops and different Cubs fans would get on. And you literally rode through through the city of Chicago and you saw the different neighborhoods and you met the people and, and the people would be yelling and people would be excited because the Cubs were about to play. They were winning. And so as we rode the train, it literally dropped us off feet from Wrigley Field. And we walked down the stairs and we walked into the stadium and we went and found our seats and we went and grabbed a hot dog hot dog from the concession stand. And it was just as good as they say it is. And then we rooted on the Cubs that night. And oh, by the way, that was September 27th of 2015. And remember, there was a total lunar eclipse that night in Chicago. Just a a beautiful autumn night in Chicago and the Cubs won. And so we got to sing, Go Cubs Go, with the crowd, and we were chanting, and we were having fun, and and Pepsi was everywhere. It was flowing. We were just drinking the Pepsi and having a good time. And then after the game, we got to walk out, and we just kind of soaked in the environment. But instead of just driving to our car, or walking to our car and driving off, we got to get back on the L train and ride it with the rest of the Cubs fans and just celebrate with them and have fun and take in the environment and take it all in. And the reality is this. We didn't have to do it that way. We could have, like I said, just went, parked, paid the 50 bucks, walked across the street, and missed all of that. But we would have missed all of that. And when you think about that, that would have been a tragedy. To miss all of that and to have missed the experience of Wrigley Field. Oftentimes that happens to us as Christians. That we too sometimes miss it. We know, but we still miss it. Uh, There's a gentleman, uh, he's a devout atheist. And he's a British atheist. And he wrote an article um, several years ago. And as he was writing the article, this is what he said. 
he said, as he was writing this, he, I'm trying, Richard Dawkins, he actually wrote it on Richard Dawkins' website of all people, but he's a devout, confirmed, blazing atheist. And as he wrote this article that was put on Richard Dawkins' website, he said this, Africa needs Jesus. Africa needs Christianity. And when you hear that, you're like, what on earth is he talking about? This is an atheist, and he's coming out and writing an article uh, saying that Africa needs Jesus, that Africa needs Christianity. And when you look at that, what we know as you dig deeper into finding out exactly who this guy is, what we know is this, that he grew up in Malawi. Uh, Matthew Paris is his name, by the way. You can go and look him up, and you can actually read the article. We're going to move quickly through it. But what he said was, I grew up in Malawi. That was my home. And I went back to Malawi to, to check on some water wells that were being built. And as I went and checked on these water wells, what it did was it reconfirmed my commitment to charities. I looked at it and I was renewed because I saw people doing these things. But then as I began to look closer, as I began to investigate more, um, things that I believed and things that I didn't believe in, and that was God. He was an atheist, a devout, confirmed atheist. He said, things began to confuse me because everything that I thought about American evangelicalism, Christian evangelicalism, didn't fit into my world, into my thinking. It, it, it confounded me, it confused me, because Christianity and the impact that it's having on Africa, it refused to fit into my worldview of things. And he went on to say in the article, we can look at charities and people coming in and, and building water wells for us. Charities, we can look at education, we can look at training, we can look at all of these things. But as I look at my, my, my family and my friends and my people here in Malawi, I've come to realize that that's not enough. And then when I look at the missionaries who come into Malawi and they share their faith of, of, of Jesus Christ, what I have learned is this, that Christianity, it changes hearts. And not only does it change hearts, people are different because their hearts have been changed. And not only are people different because their hearts have been changed, their faith is transient. Their faith moves from person to person when they hear of this Jesus, and it changes them. And that's not it. That's not the end of it. As I meet more and more people, and I look at people, and they have a joy in their life, he would talk about in the article. I would see people whose, whose lives are different and they're full of joy and, and they're doing all these wonderful things. He said the joke was, is then after I would see people like that, I would go to their cars and I would look in and I would see a Bible in there. And he said that was kind of the joke, but that was the reality. And that confused him as an atheist, as a confirmed, devout atheist. And he said, what we're seeing is how Christian evangelicalism comes into our country. And not only are people being changed and hearts being changed, but what that's doing is that's changing the economy. That's changing the governments of Africa. 
It's transient. This faith, this Jesus Christ that these devout Christians believe in, their faith is transient. And not only is it moving from people to people, but it's moving into government and everyday life. And it's changing everything. And you know what? We get that today, don't we, here in Davis, Oklahoma, because we know that Jesus changes everything. And they're seeing that. And we have a devout atheist saying, look, my country, my people, the continent of Africa, we need Jesus. And that's crazy to think that. Because he says, if, these, if my people, if the people of the continent of Africa, the country of Malawi, if they don't know this Jesus and have faith in this Jesus, then my fear is that my country is going to fall into the brink and fall under the control of Nike and the witch doctor. And that changes nothing. Now, for the Christian, for you and for me, here's the thing. We know that, don't we? We know that Jesus changes everything. We've seen it in our lives. We've seen it in our culture. We see it through Scripture and all that he says. But here's the reality. Sometimes we miss that, don't we? We know it, but there are often times when our actions betray what we believe. And, we, and not that we want to forget that, and not that we don't ever want to stop believing that. Sometimes we just miss it, don't we? We miss it in our conversations. We miss it in the way that we carry ourselves. We miss it in the decisions that we make. We miss it in the ways that we teach, the influences that we have. We all have influences. We all have platforms. And sometimes we miss it. In, in taking uh, the opportunity and the platforms that we've given and to pour into adults and young people and whoever will listen, that there's a God that wants to make their life work. A God who wants to have covenant and relationship. And not only does he want us to do that, he proved it and he demonstrated it to us while we were even still far off. Christ died for us. And we believe that, but we miss the opportunity and we miss that sometimes. And today, as we look in Luke chapter 19, we just want that to simply serve as a reminder for all of us. We don't want to just park the car, pay the 50 bucks, and walk across the street to the stadium. But we want to experience all of it. Luke 19 tells us this. It says that he, that Jesus, he entered Jericho in verse 1. It says that he was on his way to Jerusalem. Um, he was passing through, and it says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Immediately we know this. Immediately we know this about Zacchaeus. Two things, that he was a tax collector and he was wealthy. And anybody that knows as a tax collector, not only was he wealthy and not only was he well known, but he was very much disliked. Let me tell you what a tax collector does. What a tax collector would do at this time, he would be a Jew who would petition the Roman government because remember, Rome was the occupying force at the time. They were, uh, they were occupying... The, the, the country, Jericho, all, at that time, the known world, essentially. And they were an occupying force. So what Zacchaeus did, he went and he petitioned Rome. And he went, and as he petitioned Rome, he secured the rights to go and to tax his own people. 
He said, I will go and I will be your tax collector, Rome, and I will go and I will tax my own people. And what we all know is this, that as a tax collector, what a tax collector would do to make his money to gain wealth is he would say, okay, you owe the government this amount of money, and then he would tack on a surcharge. And he would keep that surcharge, and he, it would be a, a big surcharge that he would tax on, and that's the money that he would put into his pocket. Now you can understand why he was not well-liked. And here's the problem. Because as the Jewish people, they would look at Zacchaeus, and you would think, well, you know what? We're not going to stand for this. But the reality is there's nothing that they could do about it. Because if they dared to stand against Rome's official, then Rome would come down on them. That's our official there. So physically, they could do nothing about it. But emotionally, they could. And emotionally, this is what they did. They said, Zacchaeus, we don't like you. You're disliked. And not only that, we're going to hurt you the only way that we know what we can. And we're going to shun you. So let's be very clear this morning. Zacchaeus walked under the banner of saying, I care more about me than any of you. And he made that very clear. Zacchaeus was not a good guy. In verse 3, it says this, uh, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds he could not because he was small in stature. So here's what we know from verse 3. And this is where it gets interesting. Why did he want to see Jesus? Because when we look at Zacchaeus, maybe he was disliked, but he uh, wielded a certain amount of power for being an official of Rome. And not only did he have a certain amount of power, but he was wealthy. So when we look at these two things, what does our culture tell us today? That if you have power, then people know you. If you have power, then you have influence. And when we look at that, we think, well, that's a good thing. Anybody who has power and influence and people know them, well, isn't that what all of us want? Isn't that what we're taught to, to chase after? And then not only was that, but he was also wealthy. He wasn't in want. And if there was something that he wanted, he would just tack on a, a, a heftier surcharge so he could get what he wanted. So he was a guy who had wealth, he had power, he had uh, all of these things. So the question is, why would he want to see Jesus? The narrative doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. But here's what we know. There's two things that we know about Jesus where we can reason why he would want to see Jesus in this moment. The first thing that we know is that uh, everybody knew, because we're already in the 19th chapter of Luke, so everybody knew at this time that Jesus was the miracle worker, that Jesus was doing miraculous things. And not only was he doing miraculous things, but he was also famous for preaching a message of a God who was willing to accept anybody. A God who's willing to, to step into anybody's world and to accept anyone as long as they were willing to admit their need. And he was preaching this gospel. He was preaching this word that he's willing to take in anybody, no matter how far you've fallen. And when I think of these two things here, I don't know why Zacchaeus came, but I tend to, to lean towards the latter. That Zacchaeus was seeking after something. Because here was a God who was preaching this message. There was this 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 Jesus 
who had power. And the reality is this. When we see someone with power, when we see someone with influence and prestige and a position, when we see this type of individual associate with the poor, that's attractive, isn't it? It was for me when I was growing up in Broken Bow as a poor Indian kid, a poor Choctaw kid. And, and, and the reality is it, it was okay because everybody's poor and Broken Bow. We just didn't know it. I didn't have a clue until later in life that man, I'm poor. <laughs> I'm poor. And, um, but when you see someone with power, when you see someone who has it together, when you see someone, when you find the world falling apart around all of us and the world's falling apart around them, but they're different, that's attractive. And when I look in this room, that's exactly what I see. A people here in this room, students, adults, people with incredible influence. I know there are hundreds of people in this community as they look at your life and as they see you use your influence in, in a way that associates with them, those who, the others, as you're sometimes called, those who are on the fringes, those who are seeking, those who are wanting, when they see you associate with them, I want you to understand this morning, First Baptist Church, that that's attractive to the hurting, that's attractive to the lost. Zacchaeus was seeking. And here's what we know to, to hear that Zacchaeus was coming and he was wanting to see Jesus. Because what we know is this, that it wasn't enough for him to, to, to catch Jesus as he was moving out of town and maybe see him from behind. It wasn't enough for him to just stand around and listen to the stories as they described Jesus and what he was wearing and what he looked like, describing the color of his eyes, the, the length of his hair, the color of his skin. It wasn't enough for him to just sit around and listen to the stories that other people told. That wasn't enough for him. And so when we see that, we see that Zacchaeus is in this situation seeking something. And what's, what's interesting about that is, why on earth? He has everything that we need, right? He has power, and he's wealthy. He has everything that we're chasing after, and yet he wasn't satisfied. Well, how do you know that, Johnny? Because... About 2 o'clock today, after I go to Petrio's and eat, and I'm full, you know what I'm not going to go home and do? I'm not going to open the refrigerator and look for food. You know why? Because you don't seek food when you're full. Right? When you're full, when you're satisfied, you don't go seeking after something, do you? I promise you, I won't go look in the refrigerator when I get home. Seeking assumes lacking. So we know he has power, we know he has money, but that wasn't enough. And today, for all of us, it never is, is it? 
It never is. So the first point for the Christian in the room is this. When we interact with, with those who are on the fringes, those who don't know Jesus Christ, those who may not be like us, what we need to do, the first point for the Christian is this, that we need to avoid making assumptions about what's going on in their life. We need to avoid making assumptions. And I want to address something as we look at, at the evangelical church here in the United States. One of the things that we as churches tend to do and, and fall into this trap, and I know we don't want to do this, but we're quick to say that someone's hypocritical. We're quick to do that. We're quick to, to, to do that, and here's the thing. You know what? Maybe, maybe some people are. Maybe some people are hypocritical, but, but here's also something that I also want you to ponder. That when we look at the individual who's making poor decisions, and, and, and we know what those are, when we, they find themselves or we see them under the influence of something, or they're making bad decisions and, 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 and they're doing this and doing that, it's easy for us just to assume things and say, oh, look at them, and run down and, and tell all of our friends. But here's the thing. Here's something that I want you to maybe think about before you make your assumptions as believers that while we interact and while we see these in our communities and in our families think about this maybe that individual who's making these decisions that we're quick to say is a hypocrite maybe this individual doesn't like themselves and the person that they are and they're just medicating Because they don't want to live with their thoughts and the shame that comes with that. Not only maybe they're medicating, but as they make these decisions, they're just looking for something. They're searching, they're seeking, and they're looking for something to cling to, something to grab them. And they're looking, they're searching, because they just don't know how to handle their life at the moment. So they medicate. They try not to live with their thoughts and get away from that. They go and they they try the things of the world. And and yeah, they make bad decisions. But they're searching and they're seeking. They're climbing that sycamore tree that we're going to see in a little bit. And so are we, as God's people, are we really wanting to be the ones that cross our arms and shake our fists and point at them? Do we really want to be that type of church and that type of people? Absolutely not. And on the flip side, oftentimes I hear the unbeliever tell me, well, that's just a bunch of legalistic people over there and all their rules. It's a bunch of legalists and all their rules. And maybe there are some who are legalistic and forget the grace of a loving God. But you know what? Maybe... Just maybe they grew up in a house where there was abuse. In a house where, because of the situation, they're just anxious. And the control that comes with legalism is, is a safety net. And it gives them safety and it feels safe. And we have to understand that too and not be quick to point our fingers at them either. Who wants to be that? Who wants to be that person that's quick to judge and quick to assume 
Lady Gaga, one of the things that we know about Lady Gaga in September of 2015, she had, currently she has 76.6 million uh, Twitter followers currently at this moment. Uh, three years ago on her Twitter header, she wrote this. She simply wrote this, I hate my life. Now think about that. Lady Gaga, who recently just had a new movie released, um, A Star is Born, which I believe is a remake. Anyways, she wrote this. Lady Gaga comes with much fame, much fortune, much influence, much wealth, everything that we're seeking after. And for her to write, I sometimes hate my life. And to think that that comes from someone uh, like her helps me realize this and should help all of us realize this, that even in the midst of abundance, there are people everywhere, even in the midst of abundance, there's an emptiness. There's an emptiness. And for the believer in the room, let us avoid making assumptions. Because even though there may be plenty in a person's life, in the midst of abundance, there's emptiness. How are we going to to act? How are we going to interact? How are we going to be? What decisions are we going to make? Zacchaeus, he was easy to condemn. I promise you that. He was easy to condemn. But he comes to Jesus, he comes to that tree because he's lacking. Two problems, he was short and there was a crowd. So we see him climbing the sycamore tree, which makes sense. It was a low-hanging tree with low, flat branches. So it was easy for him to climb this. As he climbed the tree, he's in the tree and he sees Jesus. And then as the narrative tells us, he walks uh, into Jericho. Jesus is coming into Jericho. And as he enters Jericho, he's with his guys. His guys are following him. So you can kind of think of something like a parade. The people are lined up to see this miracle worker. People are lined up to not only see the miracle worker, because remember, he's a miracle worker. Word gets around. People want to be healed. So you can imagine the crowds that gathered. You can imagine the people wanting to see Jesus, who has the answers, who, who associates with the poor, and he's attractive. People see that, so they're lined up like a parade, you can imagine. And as he comes in, you think he's going to enter Jericho. And as he walks in, here's what happens. This is as he was, well, right there, as we move on, it tells us that he was small in stature. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. Here's what we know. Jesus could have just walked through and looked at Zacchaeus in the tree and gave him a glance, but he didn't. He did something that all of us need to see and all of us need to understand. He saw Zacchaeus up in that tree. And instead of just giving him that nod that we give, you know, when we see each other, the narrative tells us that he moves to Zacchaeus. The procession moves to Zacchaeus. Now what was, and and as he got there, he said, Jesus said this, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What's important about that? What's the significance of that? How did Jesus know who Zacchaeus was? First thing we think, well, Jesus is doing miraculous things all the time. He's just doing that Jesus thing, right? He knew who Zacchaeus was. Some might say, well, maybe they met each other some other place. The scripture doesn't tell us that, so I don't know if we can assume that uh, or not. But he knew who Zacchaeus was, and he called him by name. Why is that important? Because Jesus came to that moment, and he, he called Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. 
And what's significant about that is Zacchaeus, or Jesus was coming to Zacchaeus and he was saying this, look, Zacchaeus, I know who you are. And not only do I know who you are, Zacchaeus, I know what you do and I know the decisions that you've made. And I know the, the consequences that you're dealing with because of those decisions that you've made. Zacchaeus, I know who you are. And I know you're not a good guy, but here's what I need you to know, Zacchaeus. Not only do I still know who you are, but also I'm moving to you. I'm moving towards you. Zacchaeus, I need you to understand this. And this is something that all of us need to remember. You've made some bad decisions, Zacchaeus, and I know that. I know you're dealing with consequences from those decisions. And it's brought shame and it's brought pain into your life. But Jesus is saying, I'm still coming to you even though I know all of that. I know all of that, Zacchaeus. But you, Zacchaeus, are the reason why I'm here. You, Zacchaeus, are the reason why I came. That's the good news that everyone needs to hear. That in spite of their decisions, in spite of all the junk in their life, that Jesus is saying, you are why I'm here. I know what you've done, and I'm coming to you anyways. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, we know why, because he loves him. But Zacchaeus climbing that tree did something that all of us need to, remember, to, to see and to hide in our heart, this incredible truth. You see, for Zacchaeus to climb that tree, what he was doing as he climbed that tree, he was taking a risk by doing that. And as he climbed the tree, he was making a statement of vulnerability. It's hard to be vulnerable, isn't it? Especially as men. It's hard to be vulnerable because pride and ego keeps us from doing that. Our natural default is to just hide and to not be vulnerable. But Zacchaeus climbs that tree and he says, I know people don't like me. I know people are going to make fun of me. I know my circle of friends may ask me why I'm doing this and why I want to see Jesus. But I want to see Jesus. And I'm going to climb this tree and I'm going to take this risk and I'm going to be vulnerable before this Jesus. And he was. And that's hard. But when you're humble and when you're vulnerable like that, when you're seeking like that, I want you to know this morning that Jesus sees that and he commends that. There's a vulnerability to show need, but that's okay because that's the type of heart that Jesus is looking for. And we see that all through scripture where it seems like he's always um, pushing and, and coming against the, the religious leaders. And we would sometimes think, well, well he just doesn't like them. And the reality is, it's not that he didn't like the religious leaders, it's just that they were a proud people. They were just proud. And a proud heart is so far from the heart of God. But when you come like Zacchaeus with need, there's a vulnerability to that, and that's what Jesus is looking for. And so as we see, the procession stops, um, and here's what Jesus does. We saw where Jesus says, look, Zacchaeus, come down, um, because I'm coming to your house today. And so for the Christian in the room, the second thing that we want to remember is that, look, we need to initiate conversation. Jesus in this moment didn't just um, 
start off with the conversation on hell and say, well, let's talk about hell for a little bit, Zacchaeus, and let's go to the, let's go to the synagogue. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus didn't say, well, let's talk about hell and then go to church. He said, look, come down. I'm coming to your house today. And not only am I coming to your house today, I want to have a meal with you. And what does that mean? Who do we have meals with? We have meals with people who are important to us, don't we? Every single one of you are invited to go with, to Patrios with me after church. Why? Because you're my people. You're who I like. You're who I love. And you're all invited because that's what we do, don't we? And that's what Jesus was doing in this moment. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house and we're going to have a meal together. We're going to have a meal together. And so this is what Jesus did. He initiated uh, Pastor Ben. He's the pastor of Passion City, uh, Passion City Church in Washington, D.C. And he shared a story one time that I, that I actually read where he talked about one of his former college professors. And his former college professor uh, had given his life to Jesus Christ. He was a believer. But while he was in college, he was, he was a devout fraternity guy. And he loved the fraternity life. And he spent his life immersed in the fraternity world. And he loved to drink. And as he would tell this story, he said, when I gave my life to the Lord while I was in this fraternity, I wanted people to see that I was different now. So I made the conscious decision to just not drink when I was at the parties. I, I thought that's something that I can do, something that's in my control to show that my life has changed because my life is changed because that's what Jesus does. And so he would be there and he would talk about that he would always just have orange juice and everybody knew that he was drinking orange juice. Everybody knew that. And then he talked about one night, one of the fraternity brothers grabbed him and pushed him up against the wall. And he said, do you want a beer? And he said, no, of course not. How, how dare you ask me? You know I don't do that. I don't do that anymore. And then this fraternity brother of his, his simply said this, look, I know you don't drink beer anymore. I know you've stopped that. But what I want to know is, how come you've never asked me if I want orange juice? What's striking is what this guy was saying. He was saying this, look, I know who you are, Christian. And I know what you don't do. I know who you are, Christian. But what I want to know is, how come you never invite me to do what you do? That was the implication. We as God's people, not only do we not, we, or we have to quit assuming stuff, but also we need to begin to initiate. That's what God's people do. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. He initiates. People know who we are. People know where we go. People know the decisions that we make. And they're looking at us and they're saying, look, I know that you don't do that. But how come you're not inviting me into your world? How come you're not inviting me into your home? How come you're not inviting me to come down from my tree where I'm seeking and I'm looking for something and invite me to a meal, to your house? How come you're not doing that for me, Christian? And in verse 6 or 7, uh, and this is after Jesus told Zacchaeus to come down. I'm coming to your house. 
And in verse 7, it says this, And when they saw it, they were all grumbled. Because he, was gone, because he had gone into the house of a man who was a sinner. And we'll move quickly. Um, they grumbled, and this is interesting. They grumbled because they're like, hey, look at all of us. We're not like Zacchaeus. Remember, Zacchaeus is the bad guy. We're nothing like Zacchaeus. Why is Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house and not coming to mine? Because I sit on three committees in the church. I'm a deacon in the church. I teach Sunday school. I teach a men's Bible study on Sunday nights. Why is he going to Zacchaeus' house? I, have, I yield influence and power. And I got some wealth. Why is he going to the house of this sinner Zacchaeus? And they were angry by that. And that angered them. And you, why on earth would that anger them? Because here's why. Because what that does in verse 7 when we see this, what that tells us is this. That they were angry because what Jesus did in this moment, it betrayed an assumption. And this assumption is so far from the heart of God. But it betrayed an assumption. And that assumption is this, that I'm worthy of the presence of Jesus. For some reason, we fall into this trap where we think we're worthy of the love and the presence of Jesus Christ. And when we fall into this trap, it's easy to assume. It's easy to point. It's easy to shame. It's easy to say, look at them, look at us. It's easy to do that. It's easy not to initiate conversation, but to stay in our circle of friends or in, in, in our, uh, what we call that, our, our safety, whatever, our comfort zone. It's easy to stay in your comfort zone when you think you're worthy of the presence of Jesus. But what do we say about comfort zones in our men's Bible study class? Look, comfort zones are a beautiful place to be, I promise you. It's beautiful to be in your comfort zone. But the reality is this, the danger is this, nothing grows there. Nothing grows in our comfort zones. And for us to assume that we're, we're, we're worthy of God's presence, that, that, that's so far from the heart of God. That's not the gospel. Because the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still a long ways away, Christ died for us. And no one is worthy. No one is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for us to be angry because Jesus sat and ate with sinners is foolish of us. And for us to judge somebody and for us not to do that, for us not to show this community that, yes, you may be searching for something and you're looking for it in all of the wrong places, but let me initiate and tell you about Jesus because you are why he came. And so they were upset and uh, they grumbled. But then as we continue to read, uh, it tells us this. And Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Uh, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, which is interesting. Um, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, and he's the son of Abraham, and for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What's interesting is he said, Look, um, I'm going to restore every, all these wrongs that I've done. I'm going to restore all of this. And... Um, He's one of the things that he said. He said, if I've wronged anybody and I have, I'm, gonna, I'm going to give back uh, four times the amount, which according to the Old Testament law, that was the strongest um, 
that anybody could give to repay to pay back a wrong like that. And he said, look, half of my possessions are going out the door um, because my life has been changed. Um, half of my possessions are going out the door um, because I was once a taker, but now I'm a giver. Now, how does this happen? And the third point for us to understand is simply this, that love precedes life change. That if we're going to see a change in this community and in our church, then we need to understand that love comes before life change. That love precedes life change. We know this. We've seen this in action. We've seen how, how love has changed families, how love has changed a lot of things. And we see this all the time. For, for grandparents or for, for parents, when you show Beauty and the Beast to your children, uh, the first thing that we can look at and the first thing that we learn from Beauty and the Beast is simply this. You know, how does a beast become attractive? You got to love a beast. You got to love a beast for it to be attractive. Why? Because love always comes before life change. Love precedes life change. This is Venicio Riva. We didn't show all of him, but we showed this picture here with the Pope. Venicio, he's accustomed to the unkindness of strangers. Venicio suffers from a non-infectious genetic disease, which is neurofibrotic. Metosis type 1. It's left him completely covered from head to toe with growths, swellings, and itchy sores. His mother suffered from the same disease, and she's, she's died, and his sister suffers from a milder version of this. And you can just see a small portion of him from the side of his profile there. He's accustomed to the unkindness of strangers. His own dad won't touch him. His own father won't touch him or have anything to do with him. He has since learned, like everyone else who suffers from this horrible, horrible disease, that you just don't go anywhere. You just don't leave the house. You just stay inside and live your life and never leave the house. It's just easier that way. It's just easier that way. In, uh, a few years ago in November, Venicio and his aunt and dozens of other, this was several years ago, traveled uh, from northern Italy, as I'm reading here, to the Vatican, to Vatican City, where they attended a public audience, which was held by Pope Francis at the time. And you can see Pope Francis in the picture. They didn't have a lot of expectations or any high hopes. They just thought the, the Pope would walk by, give them a customary glance, and keep going. But the Pope didn't that day. The Pope, as he was walking, it, it was, they, they talk about how it was just a weird series of events. As they got there, the ushers would keep ushering them to the front. They would, they would move people and usher Venicio Riva to the front until he was on the front line. But again, they thought the Pope would just give him a customary glance. But the Pope, as he was coming, he looked and he saw um, Venicio Riva. And he didn't just give him that nod that we talked about a while ago, but he moved towards Venicio and not only did he move towards Venicio, he took his hand. And can you imagine for a moment for someone whose entire life people were like, stay away from me, don't be near me, and to, to, to be deprived of hum, human touch for all those years, and for the Pope to take that hand. And not only did he take that hand, you see in this picture right here, as he pulled Venicio into him, 
We later read that he kissed Venetio on the head. And he wasn't expecting that at all. He wasn't expecting that at all. His aunt said this. It said that he went straight to Venetio and he, as he embraced him tightly, she said this. I thought he wouldn't give him back to me, that he held him so tightly. We didn't speak. He said nothing, but he looked at me. It was a beautiful look that I never would have expected. Venetio went on later to say how that changed everything for him. His aunt says he's different now. This is what love does. This is what love does. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus is about. He went to Zacchaeus. And he initiated with Zacchaeus. He didn't assume that he was just a dirty tax collector, but he was someone in need who was searching. He initiated and he loved him. And Zacchaeus said, look, I'm all the wrongs that I've done. I'm here to make them right today. And let's be clear as we close. I want to be clear. He wasn't saved because he gave everything away. Him giving everything, half of his possessions away, and him restoring everything that he did wrong and making it right, that was the result of a life that was changed. Let's be clear about that. That didn't save him. That was the result of a life that was changed for Jesus. Love precedes life change. As Michael comes up, as our musicians come up and as we close, I just want to share this last thing with you. I, uh, I know in life we just sometimes, we just miss it. We just miss it. We don't want to. We don't seek to, to miss it and to just to forget these things. We just need to be reminded sometimes. And maybe we've gone down this path where we, we're just, we've realized, you know, we're just doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. And the cool thing about Jesus is this, look, about Christ is simply this. That we can start over. That we can start using this platform that he's given us. And we can initiate and just not, and not assume, but we can, just, we can start initiating and letting love change the world. Guys, the love that we have, the Jesus that we serve changes people. The Jesus that we love, the Jesus that we serve changes continents. The Jesus that we love, the Jesus that we serve brings the atheist and the unbeliever to the understanding that there's nothing like Jesus and that only he can change things. And if the atheist can believe that with all of his heart, even though he doesn't even believe that there's a God, which is weird, then can't we? Won't we? 
I want to, and I know you want to. I know you. I've, I've talked to you. I've been in your homes. I've eaten with you. Probably told stories with you. You've probably lied to me. I've probably lied to you. And I know you love the Lord. Let this simple story of a wee little man change us. Let it change our hearts. Let it change our hearts as we stand. As we stand and we move into our time of invitation. I want to say this. It's weird seeing teenagers today and their love for, for heroes, for superheroes, for Batman, for Spider-Man, for Captain America. Because I, I, I didn't have those growing up, and I'm sure they were there, but again, I didn't have anything. But it's cool to see that. To see their love for superheroes and for heroes. Because who doesn't want a hero? But what really changed my thought on that is this. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. Since it is so unlikely, no, I'm sorry, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of heroes. We've met cruelty in this world. And it's brought shame and it's brought pain. Guys, we can be heroes. Let us be heroes that don't assume. Let us be heroes that initiate conversation. And let us be heroes that love and let the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ change things because of us. As we sing.